Hello, everybody. This is Queer Voices, a home-produced podcast that has grown out of a radio show that's been on the air in Houston, Texas for several decades. This week, Deborah Bell has a conversation with Houston Pride Parade Grand Marshal nominee Courtney Sellers, Executive Director of Montrose Grace Place. We have youth that have been outright kicked out of their homes or unallowed to go back and live. And so I think especially for them, standing up and saying like, this is our day, our month, we're going to have this parade, that it's really good to see people stand up behind you like that. So I still think it's really relevant. Then Deborah talks with Reverend Troy Tresh Plummer about the Houston Metropolitan Community Church of the Resurrection celebrating its 50th anniversary this year. Our 50th anniversary Love in Action, the tagline under it is grounded in Jesus, growing in justice. And so we're continuing to grow. Uh, Justice is not uh, as easy a feel-good thing as mercy is. We like to um, give someone coffee or food or clothes and that can make us feel good immediately. Justice is longer, harder, more difficult work and can take a toll on you. And Deborah has a conversation with Jaja Galore about the caucus We Are One honors event and the Houston chapter of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. I was out one Halloween as the Wicked Witch of the West (laughs) and one of the sisters approached me and asked if I'd heard of them and I had before uh, back in New Orleans which is where I'm from originally. I hadn't heard much about them here so I got invited to a meeting and from that meeting I just became very active with them. We also have news wrap from This Way Out. Queer Voices starts now. This is Deborah Bell, and on Queer Voices, we continue our interviews with the nominees for Pride Grand Marshal. And now we have one of the people, Courtney Sellers. Courtney, what category is your nomination? I have been nominated as an ally. Tell me a little bit about your work in the Houston LGBTQ community. As the executive director at Montrose Grace Place, that is where I kind of do most of my work. I feel like I'm working 24-7. So Montrose Grace Place is an evening drop-in center for youth who are experiencing homelessness of all sexualities and genders. About 50% or more of our youth are members of the LGBTQ plus community. So we kind of take particular care um, for the members of of that community to ensure that we have a safe and affirming place for them to come where they can enjoy dinner um, with direct mentors. We do activities, um, something like jewelry making. We have partnered with other LGBTQ plus serving organizations to bring like testing to the youth, um, sexual health activities. We do creative writing, really every, anything you can imagine um, that's kind of more creative or fun. And then we also have a clothing closet called Tracy's Closet, which was named after Tracy, who was one of our youth. She was a black trans woman who was murdered in 2019. And she was a huge fan of all things fashion, and she loved to go in the closet and put together really cute outfits. So we actually named the closet after her, and it's got donated clothing, toiletries, really anything that you can imagine in there. Everybody has a chance to shop in it twice a week for seven minutes. 
Um, and then after all of that's over, we give the youth an opportunity to stay if they want to participate in what we call um, group, which is really just a time for our youth to talk more about things that they might want advice on or just vent, um, you know, more personal, more personal conversations. Um, And then, you know, we have other resources that we provide to our youth. We have um, everybody receives a bus pass every day. We have a emergency hotel voucher program in case any of the youth that come don't have anywhere to go for the night. Um, We can help with disability and all sorts of things. And then we also recently launched what we call Asia's Fund, which was named after another one of our Black trans youth who was tragically murdered in 2020, to provide financial assistance to youth that are um, trans or gender nonconforming at Montrose Grace Place. So that is where a lot of my work is. You know, for a long time, it was just me. (laughs) I was the only one working there. Everybody else was volunteering. How did uh, Grace Place come into his existence? Montrose Grace Place was started by members of a church that was called Grace Lutheran Church. And members of that church had experienced homelessness themselves as youth, many of them. And uh, many were also members of the LGBTQ plus community. And they, you know, they they realized that there were not a lot of places for youth to go and feel safe in the evening hours. Um, and especially places where LGBTQ plus youth could feel safe, affirmed, and like it was a space, you know, they, they were not just like tolerated, but actually welcomed and affirmed and cared for with a closet that like was accepting of them. For example, we don't have like a men and women section. We have masculine and feminine clothes. And so anybody can shop anywhere. There's not even an expectation, you know, of where you would go. And so eventually we kind of became our own 501c3 and the church Grace Lutheran became Kindred. And so now we are still housed inside of Kindred. We aren't, um, we aren't like a program within their church. We just rent space there, but they're a really great, I guess, landlord. (laughs) They have a kitchen team that volunteers and they're really active in the LGBTQ plus community. So it's a really good partnership. How did you come to work there? So I used to volunteer actually as a direct. So before I worked here, I was at a corporation, um, just a desk job. And my company had started an LGBTQ plus and allied like professional group. And we were all really happy because that was something that they had never had before. And people had really been asking for it. So a bunch of us joined and our fir- one of the first things we did was go volunteer at Montrose Grace Place serving dinner. And I was like, I love this because we did the dinner. Um, so our dinner is always brought by volunteers in the community. And so I was like, I really love this. Like we did dinner and the activity. And at the time I was kind of looking for something to do that wasn't just work, you know, like a volunteer opportunity. And I loved it. So I signed up to be a direct mentor. Um, And our directs are really like the backbone of Montrose Grace Place, because as I mentioned, right now there's only two full-time staff members, me and our program director, Shantian, who's amazing. But because we're so kind of volunteer heavy, they're really the backbone of the work we do. They eat dinner with the youth. They are the ones creating these long-term lasting relationships that are like healthy and uplifting. So I wanted to do that. So I became a direct mentor, and then I love the organization so much, I joined the board as treasurer. 
And then Hazard, who was the uh, director, program director at the time, she was moving. And so they asked me if I, you know, would you like to work here? And I was like, more than anything, I love this. And so I took it on and we've grown so much just in the past five years. Um, it's crazy. Like we've added another night of services and so many other services and, thing, and different new partnerships. It's really been, we've grown so much. So you're volunteer driven and I guess your funding comes also from the community? Yeah. So we actually don't get any grants from the federal or the state government. So all of our money comes from like private grants that we write or a huge one is the community. Montrose Grace Place has always um, been so heavily supported by members of the LGBTQ plus community, um, members of the LGBTQ plus community that are also people of color because the vast majority of our youth are people of color. In fact, only 10% of the youth at Montrose Grace Place are white youth. And so we always have partnered with people in the community and other organizations that center that intersection for our youth. And so all of our support is also community driven. And I think that is what really endears people to our work. We are grassroots. We are led by the community and our youth are heavily involved in everything we do. Courtney, could you tell me briefly about your coming out as an ally? Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. So I feel like I never really came out as an ally. Um, I've just kind of always lived my life in a way that is affirming to the community. Um, but I guess like coming out as an ally to me really means you just start being more vocal in the way that you stand up for and support people. And so my sister is a lesbian. And when she came out to us, I think she was really scared. Um, she actually told us by writing a letter to me and my mom when she was staged, when she was in basic training at the army. And we were like, yeah, we know. And like, we love you. We're here, you know, all the things you say. And so it really just made me think, you know, I have to be even more vocal and supportive because I want my sister to actually see me being an ally for the community and not just talking the talk. Does that make sense? I want her to see me uplifting people and providing an affirming space um, and not just saying to her like, oh, yeah, I love you no matter what. So that would probably be like coming out for me, you know, making sure that if we're together and or any time in my life that I'm in a place and someone is says something homophobic or transphobic, I'm going to make sure I'm the one that says like, no, that's not okay. Do you think that pride is still relevant? And what are some of your greatest memories about pride? I still think pride is super relevant, um, especially because working with youth, I see the kind of the need and the joy to see other people that identify the same way as you that are happy and out. And I think it's really important, especially kind of in that context at Montrose Grace Place, we serve a lot of youth who may have been kind of ostracized by family or even if not like outwardly ostracized, like don't maybe have the best relationship because their family isn't accepting or affirming of them. And we have youth that have been outright kicked out of their homes or unallowed to go back and live. And so I think especially for them, standing up and saying like, this is our day, our month, we're going to have this parade. That is, it's really good to see people stand up behind you like that. So I still think it's really relevant. 
And I'm really excited. I hope I see a bunch of our youth there. Usually we have a pretty good turnout. My favorite memories of Pride. Well, I go every year. I used to live in Montrose until I got, you know, praised out everybody else. And I loved walking from my apartment on Colquitt Street down to the parade. I loved when we first moved back to Houston. I actually have a 10-year-old daughter. So when we first moved here, when she was born, we lived down Westheimer and Upper Kirby. And we used to walk down to the start of the parade. I loved that. Taking her to the little festival they had before it was like a big thing. The last Pride before COVID, when we when I went with our board president, Natalie, we just had such a blast kind of going around and like talk to people. So I think it's always just a bunch of like fun things, you know, in my mind. I, I think those are a couple of my like favorites, though, is whenever it was in Montrose and we would walk down there. And I'll say this, it being downtown, it's kind of cool to see so many more people. And the fact that people are kind of willing to like drive in from far away to go to this parade. We've been talking with Courtney Seller. She's a nominee for Grand Marshal of Houston Pride 2022 in the category of Ally. And this is Deborah Bell. Voting for Houston Pride Grand Marshals continues through April 15th. And you can check out all the Grand Marshal nominees at the new updated website, www.pridehouston365.org. And you can see all the bios. And next week, we will be having the other nominees that we haven't covered so far. Please uh, listen then and continue to listen to Queer Voices. This is Glenn from Queer Voices. You're listening to KPFT. That means you're already participating just by listening. But how about doing more? KPFT is totally listener-funded, which means it's people like you who are making donations who support this community resource. KPFT has no corporate or government strings-attached funding, which means we're free to program responsibly but without outside influence. Will you participate in KPFT financially? This station needs everyone who listens to chip in a few dollars to keep the station going because that's the way it works. Even if you're listening over the internet on another continent, you can still contribute. Please become an active member of the listener community by making a tax-deductible contribution. Please take a minute to visit kpft.org and click on the red Donate Now button. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Bell, and today we're interviewing a very important person and one who is very dear to me. I've known Reverend Troy Tresh Plummer for many years when we both worked with the aid support group that was at the Bering Church. But this year, he's part of an incredible 50th anniversary celebration of Resurrection Metropolitan Community Church, where he serves as the pastor. Troy, welcome to Queer Voices, and let me just ask you a little bit about the church and how it got started. I know that it began in 1968 by Reverend Troy Perry in Los Angeles, and he wrote a book called The Lord is My Shepherd and He Knows I'm Gay. So how did it get started in Houston? Houston was just a few years later. We're hitting our 50th anniversary now. So 50 years ago uh, in, in Houston, it started in an apartment uh, building. Um, 
uh, just someone's apartment that they open it up for the church members to not church members yet for uh, LGBT people to come and do a Bible study. And so there was no real easy way to get there. Uh, people had to, by word of mouth, know how to go to the right apartment complex and to the right apartment in order to do that. And so uh, that was 50 years ago. Uh, then it had one or two different starts like that uh, until they finally signed a charter uh, about three years later on April 20th and uh, then officially became uh, a part of the denomination, recognized as a church instead of like a mission or a Bible study group. So people did a lot in those days uh, to try and get to find a place, to find a place that was safe, to find a place where they could be both gay uh, lesbian. Uh, that was the first two categories we uh, emphasized in those days, um, and have be and be people of faith at the same time. Yeah, it took us a while to realize that we had to expand our categories. And at that time, there weren't uh, any welcoming and affirming uh, church communities. That really was a loss for those that. Uh, of the Christian faith. Now, the metropolitan community churches are, in fact, a denomination. We are. And so the, the Los Angeles church that you mentioned still exists. Uh, we started out as a mission of the San Diego church uh, back before we were chartered. Uh, we have churches uh, throughout the United States, metropolitan, mostly in cities. And then we have churches throughout the world in Africa and Mexico, Europe, Western Europe. Uh, one of our churches was helping uh, get uh, particularly queer activists out of Ukraine early on because they were targets. And so, uh, yeah, we uh, Troy Perry's vision has expanded around the world. Wow. Uh, I didn't realize that, that it was a, such a global community. There was kind of a rocky start, though. I mean, you you talk about how people kind of had to know where to go and what door to knock on, kind of like a speakeasy back in the days of Prohibition. It was like, you know, we were still, so many people were still closeted then. Um, and then there was some pushback. What form did that take? Early on, gay people were still being harassed by police followed home from bars, uh, police cars sat outside the meeting places of the early church uh, to like take, just to harass people, intimidate people, keep them from going. And people had to go around that to get to church to worship. We even had a moment in uh, later in 76 when uh, Jerry Harvey was the pastor. She uh, had the experience of a KKK burning a cross on the church's front yard um, the church had moved into a building on Joanne Street, and that had gotten a little bit of press. And the KKK saw that, uh, did not like it, and burned a cross in the church's front yard. So that's part of the intimidation that members had to get around to be able to, to worship and to participate and create what it is now, to, to keep it going, to create what it is now. It was in a bicycle shop. It was in a TV repair shop. <laughs> um, uh, many, many places before it found a, a church home. And it was on Decatur Street, fairly close to downtown Houston for many years. And even if you didn't attend the services, more than likely you attended some community event there over the years. And that holds true today in the new location, which is where? Uh, we're on West 11th Street, just uh, west of the Heights. 
at TC Jester in White Oak Bayou. We have a beautiful facility there, a gymnasium, sanctuary. We do a lot of the concerts for our community. It's an excellent uh, concert space. And so um, we've done quite a few things there over the years, everything from marriage equality uh, to HIV AIDS memorial services, uh, annual uh, remembrances. Uh, we packed out the house there, which is a thousand seats uh, for both the pulse shootings uh, that happened more recently, and also for marriage equality. When marriage equality finally hit everywhere in the United States, uh, we did uh, on July 5th, just a, about a week later, uh, we married legally for the first time. 70 couples in our sanctuary uh, filled the space again. Um, we've been a community church. Uh, that, that part of our name uh, is aptly uh, part of it. Uh, the AIDS crisis presented some big challenges. Can you tell me a little bit about how the church was involved with that? Resurrection uh, had its, was at the center of support for uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community at that time. Uh, there was a shift in identity at that time. Whereas before the church was more sanctuary and safety, uh, it still is, but an oasis sort of thing. But then they had to become more activist and more political and protect the people who had HIV and needed treatment and needed care and were being left out. And so that actually, they lost between 40 and 50% of the members of their congregation at that time to HIV AIDS, um, but they kept at it. Uh, they, numerous, numerous memorial services, funerals, um, lots of healing was needed. One thing that happened during that, some of you may remember the earlier early days of uh, lesbian and gay rivalry in Houston starting off. Uh, we were not uh, often a cohesive community, particularly when it came between women and men. But at Resurrection, we found that uh, our lesbian community uh, stepped up so strongly surrounding our gay men uh, with care and love that that residual uh, difference that had been early on in the queer movement uh, dissolved. And we were able to be more one people at Resurrection that included both men and women uh, together. How long have you been ministering there? I, I came to Resurrection nine years ago. I, I'd been a part of, Resurrec uh, of Resurrection many years ago when I was just coming out as a, as a young gay person uh, and, and came into the church uh, wide-eyed and a little bit antsy uh, way back when, when there was a huge ministry also to the deaf community at that time. It was amazing and exciting. And then also I'd been a part of the community working with Ralph Lasher and Carolyn Mobley during the AIDS crisis when I was a pastor at Bering Memorial United Methodist Church. Then nine years ago from Chicago, I got the call to come and serve uh, the church as senior pastor here in Houston, Texas, um, which has been a joy for me. Uh, it's been an interesting nine years. A lot has happened uh, in the LGBT community in the last nine years. Um, our marriages became legal, uh, which is exciting. Uh, we are able to uh, adopt children uh, more fully. Uh, the backlash has been present uh, with all of these different um, legislation pieces trying to protect um, people's bigotry. So the backlash is definitely there, but we have come a long way in the last, last nine years.
You have a theme of, for the 50th anniversary, which is 50 years of love in action. What ways do you think the church epitomizes that? 50 years of love in action. Um, our mission is to demonstrate uh, God's inclusive love for all people through Christ-like action. So to put uh, our hands and feet to work, helping in the world outside the church walls. Uh, we've done that uh, many times whenever Houston gets flooded, for sure. Uh, we hosted the what was called the Lesbian Mafia the last time around, a group of uh, very active women who went and redid houses after Hurricane Harvey, helping out as many people as we could. During different crises in town, um, we have, uh, my gosh, the years of Black trans women being killed. We've hosted services. We have um, protested. Um, we did a, a vigil for the killing of George Floyd. Uh, we have continued to stay out front when it's about uh, justice uh, for the LGBT community and all those communities where they've been put on the margins in our city and in our world. We continue to speak up. I can't count how many times I've gone to City Hall or to Austin. We even uh, helped sponsor a trip with ACLU to the border during family separation. Our, our commitment is that Christ calls us to be on the margins and to help those who are struggling to find their voice and their place fully in the world and society and, and that respect of all and the dignity of being God's child in and among everyone. I understand that you consider it a justice church. Will you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, well, our 50th anniversary of Love in Action, the tagline under it is grounded in Jesus, growing in justice. And so we're continuing to grow. Uh, justice is not uh, an, as easy a feel-good thing as mercy is. We like to um, give someone coffee or food or clothes, and that can make us feel good immediately. Justice is longer, harder, more difficult work and can take a toll on you. And so when I say being a justice church and community, it means hanging in there, hanging in there uh, through the hard and difficult work of building relationships and building communities of diverse persons, uh, building alliances and bridges between groups that don't often talk to each other. Uh, that is the, the long plotting work of justice. And that can emerge in protest marches and other things, but building the relationships that actually help uh, transform the way we see each other and therefore the world are the core of what it means to do justice work. It also includes feeding people, but feeding people is an act of mercy. The justice work is making it so that um, people can have the food they need without relying on someone else to show them mercy. You have a number of events in order to celebrate this very landmark anniversary. You've already had one of them, which was on March 26, which was a 50 Fest, which was a family-friendly fair with activities for all ages. And people may not realize that GLBT people do have families, and many of those families include children. So what were some of the things that took place on that day? That was really fun. Um, I, I, I love seeing the children go around doing every single game. The adults would do a game here or there, but the, the children sort of made a loop and did every single game that was available from a flamingo hula hoop toss to a, another one on uh, to 
put a ring around stilettos. Uh, I love that one because <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that's not only good use for high heels. Well, uh, I would agree with you, Deborah, uh, uh, the same way. Uh, food trucks, they had fun eating. We ended with bingo and people just celebrated and had a good time. It was a beautiful, warm, sunny day. Uh, we had lots of musical entertainment. One of the things Resurrection is uh, known for and continues is excellent, excellent music. And so and we had musicians throughout the day uh, sharing with us, and it was just gorgeous. So uh, first time we've tried that in our big parking lot there, and I feel like it was a success. So we'll probably be doing more of those. Uh, but then coming up uh, is the 50th Gala uh, which is our uh, at the Hotel Zaza in Memorial. And we will be hosting two of the elders of our denomination, uh, Reverend Elder Carolyn Mobley, who used to be a, an associate pastor at Resurrection, and also Reverend Elder uh, Velma Garcia from San Antonio will be present with us for the celebration. It's turned into quite a wonderful thing with dancing and music and food. There will be uh, adult drinks for those who imbibe. And uh, we just invite anyone who's been a part of Resurrection before and wants to celebrate to get on our website and, and get tickets for the event. One unique thing happening is one of our members who's a firefighter, Iris, actually called their union and they're sponsoring a table for LGBTQ uh, firefighters to come and be a part. And so uh, she's been about making sure that they're, they can celebrate with us uh, this coming uh, 50th anniversary. And then you're going to have uh, the special anniversary Sunday worship on the 24th. Uh, do you already know what your message of the day will be in your sermon? So actually, uh, we will have a guest preacher on the anniversary. The Sunday before is Easter. I'll be preaching on Easter Sunday on the 17th. On the 24th, uh, preaching team, uh, Reverend Adrian Mobley-Bowie and Reverend Carolyn Mobley-Bowie will both be preaching the sermon together. Part of looking back at the 50 years, but also looking forward 50 years. What will we look like 50 years from now? And their title for their message is, wasn't going to tell nobody. But the truth is, we've been telling and telling and telling. So um, when something is good, you share it with others so that they can know about it as well. What is the website where people can find out more information about to attend the church or to take part in any of the anniversary events? resurrectionmcc.org is our website and you can also find us on our facebook page as well our worship uh, services are at 11 o'clock on sundays for english-speaking persons and at one o'clock for spanish-speaking service we invite people to come anytime uh, but especially for easter coming up on the 17th and our anniversary on the 24th Troy, is there any particularly fond memory you have about the church or something that I haven't asked you about that you would like to share? I appreciate Resurrection's dedication, even when it can be dangerous. Uh, my husband and I, Walter, and I uh, participated in a Freedom uh, to Marry uh, celebration where they blessed couples in the activities building because we were flooded out of the sanctuary from one of the storms in Houston. And so we're meeting in the activities building and there was a bomb threat. And what I liked about it was that people looked at each other. They announced there was a bomb threat. Some of the families with children left for safety of the, of the kids, but everyone else stayed. We weren't going to have our joy taken away of celebrating God's love through same gender 
same-sex relationships. And I just appreciated both the start of the celebration and the challenge to it that often happens to queer people. And then the walking right through the challenge to go ahead and do what you plan to do anyway. And so I have a fond memory of my husband and I with about 70 other couples that day taking our vows on the stage in the gym because the sanctuary had been flooded. Resurrection always finds a way to keep doing music. Uh, we're, keep, we're an adaptable people. We, we are. Resilience. I would love to not be complimented so much on our resilience someday, uh, but for now, I'll take it. Well, this is Deborah Bell, and we've been talking to Reverend Troy Tresh Plummer of Resurrection Metropolitan Community Church, celebrating their 50th anniversary in Houston. You're listening to Queer Voices. From New York, this is Democracy Now! KPFT presents An Evening with Amy Goodman. She's an American journalist, columnist, author, and probably best known as the host of Democracy Now! The War and Peace Report. It's a liberal progressive take on the daily news, syndicated on radio, television, and the internet, and carried on KPFT at 7 a.m. weekdays. That's An Evening with Amy Goodman, this coming Thursday, April 14th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. It's a webinar event with registration details available on the kpft.org website. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us. The We Are One Honors will be held on April 13th by the caucus, and they start at 6.30 p.m. at the ballroom at Bayou Place. Today, we talk with one of the co-chairs of the event, Sister Zsa Galore. Zsa Zsa, who is the other co-chair? The other co-chair, his name is Ozo. He, so both of us were found by Javon, who is the president of the LGBT caucus. Ozo has experience in finance and consulting. And this is being produced by Harrison Homer Guy. Yes. So I'm expecting many great things from his talent. So this is a fundraiser for the caucus, but more importantly, it honors some phenomenal, significant contributions of five community leaders. Can you tell me who they are and why they're being honored? One of our honorees is State Representative Garnett Coleman. He's being honored for his 30 years of work as a Texas State Representative since 1991. He is also a leader in healthcare, economic development, and education, and is one of the pioneers in expanding healthcare to all Texans. The second honoree is Coffee, who some may know as the drag queen who frequents JRs now, but they're being honored for their work during the AIDS epidemic and her willingness to perform and host shows for those in need of financial assistance. We also have Linda Morales, who is a community activist and responsible for her work in with the lesbian Latino community. And she was also a grand marshal in the late 90s. We also have Terry Richardson, who is our three-time caucus president. So she's being honored for her work within the caucus. And then we have the late Mickey Leland, who was one of the most effective spokespeople for anti-hunger movement here in the U.S. He was chairman of the House Select Committee on Hunger. And in 1978, was elected state representative of the 18th Congress District of Houston. That's a rich district. It's the one that Barbara Jordan held 
and now is Sheila Jackson Lee. So a wonderful legacy there. Yes. Incredible <laughs> community leaders. And I've been lucky enough to live in the 18th district. What is planned for the evening? For the evening, we have planned video tributes as well as live performances as tribute to each honoree. So, for example, we will have a mariachi band and a drag performance. Yes, we also have um, happy hours. So there will be, for those who are interested in VIP, we will have a VIP event at 6.30 with our presenting sponsor and those who have sponsored other individuals as well to come to the event. That's at 6.30, and then the show will start at 7. Now, this is the second time that there has been one of the events, and they kind of came about with a, a certain intention. Can you share what that is? The intention is really to honor those in our communities, to show tribute to those who have come before us within the LGBT plus community and have paved the way for those of us who are a little younger and have been given privilege thanks to their work. And it's also, I think, to recognize the contributions of women and of people of color, which maybe have been bypassed in former years. In general, it's usually been one type of person to be honored. And now, especially Houston is recognized as one of the most diverse cities in the country. We want the caucus to, to represent that, but also to recognize those who are doing the work who may not be a part of the caucus but still influence the community at large. What are some of the other things that might be expected of the evening? One thing to expect from the evening, we will have little swag bags for those who choose to VIP with products from local businesses. One business um, being Sanctuary Spa. Our guests will get nice facial masks for beauty, which will contribute to just feeling better and looking better. Also, we will have a cash bar. And just, it'll be a nice little, almost like a happy hour with a great show. And I guess there's food involved as well? There will not be food at this event. However, the event is about an hour and a half. So you may have your cocktail hour, you mingle a little bit, and then you just go next door and get some, grab some food with your friends. It's a nice little evening starter. <laughs> is there a particular part that you will play at the event or who else might be involved that we haven't acknowledged so far? I'll be mingling with people, but also making sure things are running smoothly. I'll also give some information about myself and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is how I met Javon. And Chris Hollins will also speak to the audience about his platform. Yeah, tell me a little bit, since we're on the subject, of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence and how you came to be involved with that. I became with, involved with the Sisters about two years ago now. I was out one Halloween as the Wicked Witch of the West, (laughs) and one of the sisters approached me and asked if I'd heard of them, and I had before, uh, back in New Orleans, which is where I'm from originally. I hadn't heard much about them here, so I got invited to a meeting, and from that meeting, I just became very active with them. It was appealing to me because the sisters, we are drag queens with a non-aesthetic, or some say queer nuns, and so with the purpose of being the nuns of the community. So we do a lot of community service and we will put on charity events for certain causes or other organizations. And we will also support others' charity events like this one or others' events like Barcode and Ripcord that are raising funds for lesser known organizations. I started off, there's a process 
sort of like Catholic nuns, we go from aspirant to fully professed. And that's because we take the work of sistering seriously, even though it's, it's fun. You know, you are in drag, so there's a fun element to it, but there's also a bit of responsibility that we like to acknowledge as well. So you go from aspirancy to postulant, novice, and then fully professed. Once you're fully professed, you are trusted that you know what sistering is and you can represent the sisters to your best ability. And you can go out as a sister unsolicited, just how the spirit moves you. And everyone within the sisters has their own expression of sistering. So for me, as Sister Jaja Galore, I like to do a lot of community service with youth, um, in particular, the homeless LGBTQ plus youth at Montreal's Grace Place. That's sort of my charity of choice for the moment. And so when I do have a fundraiser, it'll be for them. Another great thing that I love about being sisters is that there are chapters internationally. So the organization started in San Francisco in 1979. And I went to San Francisco this past August and was able to meet one of the original sisters. And it was such um, an enriching experience to hear how they started and why they started and how I'm sort of part of that legacy and how we connected, not just on the fact that we're sisters, but our view of sistering and how we see the world. Because most sisters are also have some sort of religious belief. And it varies across the board. Some we have a few who practice Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, Wicca. And so it really, it's a wide range, but we're all coming together for a common purpose. And we're aware that being gay influences how we see the world, or even not just gay, but lesbian, trans, and wherever you are on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. And that it influences your whole life. It's not just who you're attracted to, but it's how you interact with the world. I like that term sistering. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. About how many people are, do you call it a chapter or? Yes, a chapter. So uh, the technical word for it is a chapter, but we like to call it a house. So the Houston house, we're called the Space City Sisters of Perpetual Intelligence. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) And right now we have about eight members. So we have four fully professed members right now who are also on the board. And then we have other members who are coming up through the ranks that we're helping to mentor them through the process. However, we have, there are several chapters within Texas. So there's a San Antonio chapter, Austin, and Dallas. I'm wondering, is there a male counterpart to being a sister? Yes, there is. Within the Order of the Sisters, we do have guards. Our chapter calls them guards, and their role within the sisters is to sort of just be the male presenting counterpart to a sister. Of course, anyone can be a guard, so just like anyone can be a sister, uh, however you identify and what you're comfortable with. How it came to be was when the sisters started back in 1979, and as they got popular, they were very politically active. With that, there were others within the leather community that thought maybe the sisters could use a little bit of protection or just to, you know, to support the sisters. You know, sisters are supporting the community. Who's supporting the sisters? Guards came to be, as that's where the name came from. They're guarding the sisters, but also sort of guarding the mission overall. And so they initially were out guarding the sisters at activist events. And now it's, it's more of a name that is a nod to history Though there are some guards that take their name very seriously, and one of the guards here in Houston, Guard Oliver, who's also vice president, he, he takes it quite, quite seriously and likes to check on me every now and then. 
um, to see how I'm doing. So that's, it's, it's great. Uh, it's another fun element to the sisters. Well, I know that we're very gender bending in our community, but I just want to clarify, both men and women can be sisters of perpetual indulgence or guards? Yes. However you, identi- however you identify with your gender, you can be a part of the sisters and we'll work with your identification, whatever you're comfortable with. We're not going to make someone be a guard because they're male presenting or, or be a drag queen because they're male presenting. However you come to the table and how you want to be active is how we'll work with you to help you excel within the order. And if someone wants to get involved with the sisters, how, how do they make contact? Yes. So one way you can go to spacecitysisters.org and that will give you all the information you need. It'll describe the process. You'll see who the president is, which is myself and vice president and see everyone's bios. You can also go on to Instagram at Space City Sisters, Facebook, Space City Sisters as well. Also, if you see us out and you're interested, let us know. You know, we love to meet people. At least you uh, will be represented at the We Are One Honors on April 13th. It's a fundraiser for the caucus, and it honors five phenomenal community leaders who are State Representative Garnett Ullman, Dry Queen Coffee, Linda Morales, Terry Richardson, and the late Mickey Leland. This is Deborah Bell. We've been talking to Jaja Galore about the We Are One honors taking place April 13th. You're listening to Queer Voices. I'm Melanie Keller. And I'm Michael Taylor Gray. With Newswrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending April 2nd, 2022. Criminalizing lesbian sex has been specifically declared a violation of international law and human rights for the first time. The March 23rd announcement by the UN Committee on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women involved a challenge to Sri Lanka's colonial-era penal code. It punishes carnal intercourse against the order of nature with up to 10 years in prison and a fine and any act of gross indecency with up to two years in prison and a fine according to Human Rights Watch. Lesbian Sri Lankan human rights activist Rosanna Flamer Caldera told the United Nations panel that Penal Code Section 365A violates her right to live free from discrimination. The panel decided the criminalization of same-sex sexual activity between women in the South Asian nation has meant that Flamer Caldera has had difficulties with finding a partner, has had to hide her relations, and runs the risk of being investigated and prosecuted in this context. It said that Sri Lanka's government had failed to protect her against and have partaken in harassment, abuse, and threats against the author's work promoting the rights of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex community in Sri Lanka. It also called on the government to specifically protect and financially compensate Flamer Caldera and to decriminalize consensual same-sex sexual conduct between women having passed the age of consent. By extension, that means all consensual adult same-gender sexual conduct. The Sri Lankan government has six months to file a written response. Thailand politicians are playing another round of pass the hot potato. With two popular bills, the cabinet has returned to the parliament for further review. It's an ongoing procedural tactic to prevent both the progressive liquor and marriage equality bills from coming to a vote, according to Coconuts Bangkok. 
Deputy Government Spokesperson Rashada Donatarek said that the marriage equality bill was considered to be too similar to a less-than-marriage civil partnerships bill that's also being considered. Donatarek claimed that home brewing of alcohol is already allowed, making the progressive liquor bill unnecessary. In Coconut Bangkok's assessment, when the opposition Move Forward Party introduced the two bills early last month, they were kicked to the cabinet for review. Now they're heading back to Parliament, where they will likely be shelved two months prior to being read again and, in all likelihood, punted back to the cabinet. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Parental Rights in Education Bill into law on March 28th. No doubt what's known as the Don't Say Gay Bill is intended to push his unannounced bid for the Republican presidential nomination. His new law specifically bans any classroom discussion of sexual orientation or gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. Its additional age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate language is so vague that many teachers will probably self-censor those subjects in all grade levels. Parents are allowed to sue a school district if they think the law has been violated in their child's classroom. So imagine a third grade teacher during typical classroom discussions about family when at least one student begins describing their two moms or two dads. What should the teacher do? The bigoted law is scheduled to take effect on July 1st, but the first federal lawsuit has already been filed. Equality Florida and Family Equality is joining students, parents, and teachers to challenge the law. Attorneys from the National Center for Lesbian Rights filed the suit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Florida on March 31st. The judge assigned to the case is Alan Windsor. Slate first reported that Windsor is a Trump appointee whose apparent qualification was his defense of the state's now-defunct marriage equality ban in 2014. On the upside, Robbie Kaplan is leading the opposition's legal charge. She is best known for winning the Supreme Court case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act, the decision that paved the way for the High Court's marriage equality ruling two years later. Into the Florida fray has come one of TV's favorite sons of anarchy, straight from the movie Nightmare Alley. Hellboy actor Ron Perlman is a notorious social media political F-bomber, and he had some choice words for the Florida governor, although, ironically, he can't say a few of them on the radio. Good morning, Governor DeSantis. Ron here. Um, don't say gay. Don't say as the first two words in a sentence spoken by a political leader of a state in the United States of America, don't say. Don't say, you Nazi pig. Say. First Amendment. Read about it. Then run for office. You. Republicans are pushing similar don't say gay bills in at least 16 other states. The governors of both Arizona and Oklahoma jumped on the bandwagon this week for laws to persecute transgender youth, another kind of don't say that's becoming all the rage in Republican-dominated U.S. states. Arizona's Doug Ducey marked Transgender Day of Visibility on March 31st by signing a bill to ban trans girls and women from competing in school sports. He also added his signature to a bill outlawing gender-affirming surgery for transgender minors. Healthcare professionals rarely support surgery for trans people under the age of 18, so that law is no more than hateful symbolism. 
Oklahoma's Kevin Stitt signed the state's trans sports ban bill on Trans Visibility Day, too. Like most such bills, both the Arizona and Oklahoma anti-trans sports measures specifically target trans girls and women, not trans boys and men. Utah's Republican Governor Spencer Cox vetoed a trans sports ban bill last week, but lawmakers quickly overrode it. The Indiana legislature could override Republican Governor Eric Holcomb's veto of a similar measure when it reconvenes in May. Close to a half dozen U.S. states have banned trans girls and women from competing in school sports in just the first three months of this year. The option of an X-gender marker on U.S. passports will be added to the traditional M and F designations beginning on April 11th. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said in his March 31st announcement that the option will become available for other forms of documentation next year. The change comes seven years after intersex Navy veteran Dana Zim sued the State Department after it denied their application for a passport with the X-gender marker. Zim received the first gender-neutral U.S. passport last October. Secretary Blinken added, We reaffirm our commitment to promoting and protecting the freedom, dignity, and equality of all persons, including transgender, non-binary, and gender nonconforming persons around the world. The United States joins a number of other countries that offer a third gender option, including Australia, Austria, Bangladesh, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Iceland, India, Malta, Nepal, New Zealand, and Pakistan, according to The Advocate. Finally, to a majority of sane people, U.S. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia has become a laughingstock. She first burst onto the political landscape by warning against Jewish-controlled lasers in space. The QAnon conspiracy favorite of the Republican Party's neo-Nazi wing has been one of the most hyperventilating opponents of pandemic protections. Still, supporters of Donald Trump continue to eat up her often beyond-the-pale, blatantly bigoted remarks. She was among the warm-up acts at a Trump Save America rally in Commerce, Georgia on March 26th. Maybe not that warm, since by most accounts, there were many empty seats and quite a few mid-Trump walkouts. Green rallied the troops, promising a Republican-controlled Congress that will actually build Trump's southern border wall and expand domestic oil drilling. The crazy train went off the rails with her attack on U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and his husband, Chastin. And you know what? Pete Buttigieg can take his electric vehicles and his bicycles, and he and his husband can stay out of our girls' bathrooms. Yep. Yeah. Secretary Buttigieg called Green's rant literally nonsensical. A Twitter user wrote, I'm a woman, and honestly, I'd rather have Pete Buttigieg in the bathroom with me than Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's News Wrap, global queer news with attitude for the week ending April 2nd, 2022. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell, produced by Brian DeShazer, and brought to you by you. Thank you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Melanie Keller. Stay healthy. And I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Stay safe.
This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage queervoices.org for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Lavinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions, and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining products. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.